basically world religions, uh, studying the different religions of the world. I then went straight to a doctoral program, sort of skipped the master, went straight to a doctoral program at Harvard in uh, Sanskrit and Indian studies. Uh, and uh, apart from that, um, I have been a, I guess you'd say a pretty serious practitioner of bhakti yoga for, uh, wow, 51 years now, about wow. 51 years. Remarkable considering how young I am. So, so I've been doing that for about 51 years and um, I've basically taught all over the world, both in spiritual communities and also lectured at a lot of the, a lot of the best universities in the world and Europe and North America, and even some, to some extent, India and South America. So um, yeah, been fortunate to uh, do a lot of things. So, and, and now we've uh, we started something called Krishna West, trying to make this knowledge accessible uh, to people from the Western world, or I would include in that general category, people who uh, are strongly influenced by certain Western worldviews, such as rationalism and and empiricism. Of course, in one sense, rationalism and empiricism really are not Western. They're just just rationalism and empiricism. But if we study um, the intellectual history of the world at different times and places in world history, people have certainly approached rationalism in different ways with different assumptions. And although I think there's something objective and non-regional about science properly done. Excellent. So I'll stop. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so let's go actually um, uh, in an alphabetical order. Could we start with David? David, do you want to quickly introduce yourself in a couple of sentences maybe? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm David Larios. I'm first year grad student. Um, I'm uh, in the program of biology here at Caltech. I'm working in the lab of Lea Guentoro, who studies mainly how cells perceive and also how cells regenerate and grow old. So that's basically it. Wow. That's I'm from Mexico, from my home state is Veracruz. In the ah, East. Veracruz. Yeah. All right. Um, Enrique, do you want to go next? Or Emmanuel, maybe? Uh, okay. Go ahead, Enrique. Okay, so my name is Enrique Amaya. I'm uh, also a first-year grad student in the program of biology at Caltech. And I, my area of expertise is um, experimental molecular biology. I did my undergrad in Mexico, and then uh, I started doing my um, graduate studies here in the US. Excellent, thank you. Uh, Emmanuel? Hi everyone, so I'm Emmanuel. Um, I'm studying right now um, sort of biological data science and things related to like cow cells um, uh, express their genes and like, um, things of, of trying to understand how the cell works. Interesting, thank you. Okay, who's next? Uh, Manuel. Um, 
Hi, my name, my name is Manuel as well. I'm really happy to see everyone here. Uh, people might think that Caltech is full of Mexicans, but actually this is a core of the students. We just happen <laughs> to be very selection good effective, actually. <laughs> yeah, we're always it's, it's great to, to just hang out with these guys because we're always chatting about philosophical matters in our own, you know, friend to friend interactions. But having this more formal discussion is kind of fun. So just as the almost the rest of everyone that is going to tell themselves, I'm from Mexico as well. I did my undergrad in the National Polytechnic Institute, and now I'm studying um, biophysics. So I'm really intrigued. Uh, last time when we heard of, from Dr. Resnick, I was really intrigued about the ideas of philosophical materialism and stuff, because my entire lab and my entire research project is actually trying to bring biology into the realm of, of physics and just have it as a new branch of physics. But I, I think oh. people might argue, might argue that this is not the case. And I'm really intrigued, you know, I'm open-minded, so I'm, I'm excited about this. Excellent, excellent. Porfirio. Hi, uh, my name is Porfirio. I am finishing my PhD in biology, uh, studying how genes uh, get activated as well. So similar to these other guys. I'm also really happy to be here. All right. Andres, you should have gone first, but sorry. You're muted. Okay, let's unmute. Um, yeah, so uh, sorry, <clears throat> I was late. So it's fair that I'm that I'm last. Uh, it's uh, oh yeah. So my name is Andres Ortiz. I'm also from Mexico, from the border border region of El Paso, Juarez. Uh, and I do I. I'm a mathematician and I apply math to biology. Uh, I'm interested in um, intrinsic uh, properties of uh, matter uh, for compu uh, computing. So like uh, comp computing with molecules. Uh, and I'm interested in <clears throat> things like uh, logic and philosophy of math. Um, and um, um, consciousness and the origins of life um, and how everything relates to um, to mathematics and uh, knowledge representation and language and, and just, uh, how it all fits together. Very interesting. Yeah. Juarez in 73. Haciendo que? Antes de ti. Ah, yo estaba Así, joven, distribuyendo libros y, y estuvimos en El Paso y fuimos a Juárez. Qué bien, qué bien. Hacer una conferencia. Qué I just told him that I was in his city in uh, 1973, before he was there. Wow. Okay. That's right. That is right. It's more like one Interesting. Second. All right. Let's, let's do quickly Guru. Uh, Guru Prasad. Uh, are you there? We can't see you, but uh, could you maybe quickly introduce yourself in a couple of sentences, maybe? Yeah. Hi. Uh, so my name is Guru, and uh, I'm also a graduate student at Caltech. Um, I'm in uh, pursuing my PhD in bioengineering. So my general interests are towards like understanding. So my my research is in terms of understanding self-organization of biological systems. And uh, I'm also very excited and interested about 
uh, like what is consciousness and is this is it is it material? Because most of the times neuroscientists say that it's an epiphenomenon of like brain activity. But part of me feels like it's not that it's not that that's not as simple as it as it, uh, it's not a very it's not as simple as it sounds. So it's definitely something more to it. Um, I would like to think more in terms of how do we design like scientific experiments, not like and try to prove or disprove the. Um, we know it exists, but how do we actually you now consolidate with what we know scientifically, so-called scientifically, modern scientifically, with, uh, um, yeah, and I'd, I'm also like very interested in studying the basic scriptures and how to see if there's something, some clues that we could actually extract from there to actually build better scientific models. Excellent. Thank you. I'm so glad to see that uh, more and more uh, scientists are getting interested in this problem of consciousness and the mind. This is uh, very good to see that. Uh, so I'll quickly introduce myself. I'm Kunal Mule. I am a postdoc at Caltech. Um, I did my PhD also at Caltech, actually, so I've been here for quite a while now. Um, my field of expertise is mainly transient phenomena in astrophysics, like I study supernovae, um, cataclysmic events uh, like gamma ray bursts or things like that, that uh, very drastically change the course of history or the evolution of uh, uh, history of the evolution of uh, the uh, our universe. So um, recently I've been very heavily involved with gravitational waves and uh, uh, neutron star mergers and uh, uh, these kinds of uh, uh, events that occur in, in our universe. So uh, I'm a physicist by training. My master's was in physics. My PhD was in astrophysics. And I'm interested in problems like mind and consciousness or beyond going beyond um, sort of materialism uh, from a physicist perspective, which might sound, sound ironic. But, uh, sort of my interest is... All right, so... Um, thanks for the introductions, everyone. And um, Dr. Resnick... In case there are, so you have this document with you, right? Hey, uh, there's one more. There's one more person in the call now. Um, oh, and I'm sorry. Ananda Leela. Oh, Ananda Leela. Yeah, Ananda Leela is uh, uh, managing the Zoom meeting right now. So. <laughs> I see. So you're um, welcome. Uh, Ananda Leela, I can. Oh my God! One second. <laughs> Te voy a llamar después porque estoy en medio de un programa, ¿está bien? Está bien, sí, más tarde te llamo. What a rockstar. All right, so... Um... Well, I could say a word about Nanda Leela because she probably wouldn't be as enthusiastic as I am to talk about herself. But she is originally from Brazil and came with her uh, with her husband here to the United States and uh, has done a lot of very, very important work here. And uh, without her, I probably, uh, I don't know what I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> because she manages all of our communication. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm just the front man. If she, if she speaks Portuñol, then we can just switch to Spanish and... <laughs> oh, she actually is fluent in Spanish and Portuguese. Oh, nice, nice. So, fala Portuguese then. Follow me. I'm, I'm the odd man out here. <laughs> so I'm, guru, I'm Guru. 
<laughs> so, um, do the bang and thumb. So, should we uh, jump into the questions? I, I was sent a list of your, the students, your questions or concerns and... Uh, yeah. Okay. So, I'd suggest let's start with uh, a question from uh, Emmanuel or Manu there. So, if, if you have, uh, if there's a particular order that you'd like to take these questions in... No, uh, no, I just uh, take them as they yeah. come. So... Maybe actually there's a question that I have for you, Dr. Yeah. Howard, um, that I didn't write down, but I was just seeing this video in YouTube uh, the other day. And I was very like um, intrigued in the point that you said that in a sense, there's this like um, coherent, um, like, like all of the people in the world are um, in agreement as to like where science should more or less um, head to. But it's interesting that in religion, it's not this. It's not this way. Um, and uh, so I would, I would say, okay, I think that's a false dichotomy. Yes. Well, can you expand on it? Yeah, for the simple reason that there is a principle in debate or just in rational uh, discussion. And that is that you have to defeat the strongest argument of your opponent, not a weaker argument. That's called straw man, you know, straw man argument. So there's a tendency to look at science in its most sort of unified form and uh, to look at religion in its worst form, to take the worst version of religion. And I'll, I'll give I'll give one example of that. Um, perhaps at least in the last many centuries, or even you could say the last millennia or two, um, probably the most prominent form of religion in the world, and the religions which even today have the most members, has been uh, various forms of monotheism. And uh, of course, you know Christianity sort of, you know, the Trinity thing is kind of, anyway, I won't go into that, whether it's really monotheism. But let's call for now Christian Christianity monotheistic tradition, the idea of believing in one supreme God, and of course Islam, and uh, Judaism, and, and Vaishnavism, actually, the, the Christian tradition is also very strongly monotheistic. But if we look at the, at, at the different monotheisms in the world, uh, we can make a clear distinction between uh, both intra and inter, in other words, both within a tradition and also between traditions, uh, there is what I call uh, tribal monotheism and there is philosophical monotheism. And so tribal monotheism means that there is sort of a tribal sociology, psychology, us and them. And uh, it generally is not philosophical or at least not in that claim. And, and uh, interestingly, uh, the three, what are called Abrahamic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, which tend to, which for most people in the West, they, when they talk about religion, they're really talking about those religions as opposed to South and East Asian traditions like Hinduism, Buddhism. And it's very common, even among scholars who, often make somewhat unintelligent statements about religion, that to 
to assume that the characteristics of religions that came out of the Middle, Middle East are sort of universal characteristics of religion in general, which of course they're not. So if you look at the Middle East, because of certain geographic and even meteorological considerations, uh, historically it tended to foster tribal societies. There are also great civilizations going back to Sumerian, the Babylonian, the, the Persian. I mean, there, there were also larger scale, but certainly in the Near East where the traditions come from, uh, there was a type of, because there was a tribal society in general. And so when they came up with monotheism, uh, it tended to be a type of tribal monotheism in the sense that basically, you know, my God can beat up your God. Or uh, because if you think of the psychology of a tribe, it's like, you know, we are everything and everybody else is nothing. And the mere fact that you are outside of our tribe is more than enough justification to, to kill you or, you know, or to subjugate you, whatever. And so you have these traditions I mean, if you look at the Roman, if you look at uh, certain ancient Roman writers, they were very fearful of the consequences of fanatical Middle Eastern religions becoming established in Europe. Because if you look at European religion, let's say in Greco-Roman times, it was very much uh, syncretistic. In other words, you would never look at religion in the classical world and say that religion causes wars, or religions are fanatic, you would never think that because they weren't. I mean, there were fanatics, but they were syncretistic. They, they, they took for granted that we're all worshiping the same thing with different names. And uh, the emperor of Rome, for example, would send donations to various religions, including to the, the temple in Jerusalem, so that worship could be done on behalf of the emperor because the Romans thought, well, there are different channels to divine power and you can't get too much divine power, and so let's just collect it. So then you get this infusion of sort of tribal, fanatical, this is the only way, everyone else is going to help. And uh, this version of religion, which I call tribal monotheism. But meanwhile, not only in the Greco-Roman world, the pagan world, but also certainly powerfully in India, you had the sophisticated, uh, tolerant, view of religion. In India, they didn't generally fight religious wars, and they took for granted that, that there's truth in other traditions. And so therefore, this sort of dialectical allergic reaction of science and, uh, um, and Western so-called intellectualism in general think that whereas in science, we're open-minded, and we just look at the facts and uh, we adjust things. We don't claim to have a final truth, yet uh, is contrasted with the fanaticism and often historically the violent and uh, destructive, abusive uh, fanaticism of religion. And so you get this picture of reason versus fanaticism, objectivity versus unself-aware subjectivity and sort of a this picture of a worldwide science community peacefully working together versus all these religious wars and battles and so on. And of course, if you are in the field of science, this is an extremely flattering way to look at the world. Uh, 
but it's not very hard to problematize this picture of the world. I mean, there's some truth in it. There's some truth in that picture, but there's also a lot of self-deception in it. Because there are times and places in history where large numbers of people lived together very peacefully. And even let's say there was sharing, there was uh, you know, cross fertilizations, kind of like a, <laughs> strikes me as kind of a weird metaphor, but anyway, so the same kinds of cooperation, the same, same kinds of debates, objective debates you find in the realm of science, you also found it many times and places among religious people who were not tribal, they were philosophical. Because philosophy, like science, obeys certain objective principles. For example, you cannot contradict yourself. So that if you're, if you're reasoning philosophically, and you simply contradict yourself, then you're not really expressing something valid. And so philosophy is an academic discipline and it does obey certain objective principles which allow many people that disagree in many ways to still have peaceful, productive conversations over time, over long periods of time. And so I would say, if you look at human religiosity, what you find in every tradition, whether it's the three Abrahamic traditions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, or, or, or um, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, or the Eastern traditions, that you find learned philosophical people who do talk to each other much in the same way that scientists do, and you find fanatics. But we find fanatics among scientists as we know, because as Thomas Kuhn pointed out in his famous work called The uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, that if you study the actual history of science, there is on the one hand, the progress of what I would call legitimate science, where things are really based on facts, experimentation, reasonable analysis, and so on. And then again, there's a whole fanatical field of it where it's been highly politicized. It's been highly politicized and uh, scientists make claims which are not scientific. For example, that uh, there is nothing in the universe but physical elements. And if we can master the causal relationships between physical elements, then we've understood everything. And of course, that's not a scientific claim. That's a philosophical claim, and it's a pretty stupid one, anyway, for many philosophers. <laughs> so actually, but, um, sorry, so therefore, a, I think a more fair comparison would be to say that if we study human psychology, there are reasonable people who are basically open-minded and fair-minded, and there are fanatics. Fanaticism is not something that belongs to religion or to science. It is a type of human psychology. And so just like if you get a sufficient population of human beings, you're gonna find human beings of different sizes, of different ages, you know, different eye color and hair color, different, and different psychologies. So in every field, whether it's science or religion or, or stamp collecting or whatever, some, there's, you're gonna find a certain percentage of that population, which is neurologically fanatical. 
And so again, if we look at religion at its philosophical best and science at its best, I think they're just, as Aristotle realized, they're just two different approaches to try to understand the universe that we live. So this is an excellent point to actually bring up one question, which is quite on the uh, borderline between science and philosophy. I like one of Manuel's question. Do you want to ask it yourself, Manuel, his last question that you've written down? Me? Yeah. I actually forgot what I wrote. but Okay, I can read it out. What is the Thank idea you. behind trying to bring together science and philosophy actually is written specifically yoga philosophy. <clears throat> but the question goes on to say science at the end of the day is an empirical activity based on observables and measurable facts. If questions such as the nature of consciousness are fundamentally outside of the scope of what science can answer, what is the point of bringing these two realms together? I was so, thinking the same question. I was just thinking before you mentioned <laughs> that we should include that question. Very good question. It's an excellent question. Um, okay, for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, as one uh, Nobel laureate, he's Israeli. I, I watched an interview with him. I just forgot his name, but he's a Nobel laureate. And he was saying that science, how should I put it? If scientists, well, there's a few points here. If scientists completely detach themselves from philosophy, then they can simply become the tools of bad people. Hitler had his scientists. And, you know, all kinds of murderous dictators, they all have their scientists. And so if science itself, you could say, is amoral in the sense that it's just the facts. I mean, if you look, for example, at Newton's discoveries or or quantum mechanics or anything, or the fact that, you know, the earth goes around the sun. If you look at any scientific facts, they're just facts. It's, that's just the way it is. It's not that it's morally good. It's not virtuous that the sun, go, that the earth goes around the sun. And it's not sinful that the earth goes around the sun. The earth just goes around the sun. That's just the way it is. And so, I would say that to the extent that, because no one is really a scientist, we are really human beings, well, you are, human beings doing science. And so if someone forgets that I'm a human being doing science, or if someone's even a little wiser, I'm a soul in a human body doing science, then you understand that, that a career in science does not excuse me or, or uh, uh, free me from any moral responsibility. Like, okay, I know Hitler is not a good person and you know I'm working for Hitler, I'm a German scientist back then, but uh, you know, all I care about is science. I don't think we would really justify that. Like I'm gonna find the most efficient way to uh, kill on an industrial scale, innocent human beings. Because there were scientists that worked on that. That was their project. What's the most efficient scientific way to kill hundreds of thousands of people? Yeah, but I will say that in that point- well, that, that was just the first point. That was, that was just the first point uh, I was gonna make. But go can ahead. Can I just make a comment on that? Yeah. 
because the point that one is one of the most controversial things that I've ever read about the story of Fritz Haber specifically, German chemist uh, that worked on developing, among other things, the gas that was used in the torture chambers or a variant of that gas. Uh, but his process, the the Haber Bosch process, it's now calculated that one out of every two human beings alive nowadays are alive because of that process. So he, the, the, the story goes that in order to make anything that explodes nitroglycerin, TNT and whatever, you need nitrogen. And nitrogen is very, very abundant in the air, but it's very scarce to find in either a fossil form or even in, in biological forms. There's, right. for example, plants cannot fix their own nitrogen and they have to use the microbes that, that live in symbiosis with them in the, in the roots. And it's just a complex biological problem because of the strong bond of the two nitrogen atoms that is a triple bond. Now, Fritz Haber comes with this process in reality to help Hitler's enterprise uh, to, to just generate more uh, explosives for, for the army. Uh, actually, be even before Hitler, it was in the First World War, uh, but then the industrialization of that process allows us to have nowadays, which has now its own uh, consequences, okay, but, but, but industrial yeah. agriculture. So, so he he kills he he. You can claim that Fritz Haber killed hundreds of thousands of human beings, but now there's billions of people alive because of his discovery. Okay, but that but you see that that really does not address the issue because. No, because we can, well, I, no, no, I'm saying I'm saying because we can very easily find a scientist who did bad things and didn't save a lot of people. And, and so I use that example in general. So, yeah, I mean, of course, there are often unintended consequences and sometimes they're very positive. But, yeah, I, but, but, but just, so, just, so, so let, let me let me just refine the question, because because otherwise so, so we know exactly what I mean. My point is, if a scientist, let's say, is engaged in some type of research, which is going to do a lot of evil, and to the best of that scientist's knowledge, there is no great benefit from it, or even if there is. I mean, for example, I'll give you an example. Right now, if we scientifically uh, engage in genocide, Let's say, for example, somehow or other, whoever had the power to do this, it could be a group of nations, an alliance, they got together and they decided that we are going to uh, kill about maybe 5 billion people. But it will do wonders for the environment. I mean, so many species will be saved and maybe life on earth will be saved and so but we're just going to kill so in other words what, what i'm lo looking at is is it justified for a scientist to completely ignore what he or she is doing in other words if it's science because a lot of because not all scientific discoveries benefit large numbers of people and 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 so that's really the moral issue is it, yeah. is, is it, is it, and, and my, I think the answer is no, it's not justified. I and agree. So, I will say, just to say that my point with the story was that I feel that science is just science. Knowledge is knowledge. 
And right. just like with religion, you know, hate the player, not the game, for that matter. Uh, so, for, of course, scientists cannot disconnect from the moral consequences of their research, but just the pursuit of knowledge, uh, the, the, un, the, the unchain of these secondary consequences that you cannot really predict with your discoveries. No, but, but, I, but I'm actually talking about intended predictable consequences. Okay, okay, okay. Actually, could we make this question slightly, uh, I mean, just uh, very focused on consciousness so that we can segue into. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So I will. So I'll get into that now. Here, here's a segue. That, that was just one point I wanted to make. But uh, another point is that ultimately, I hope we would all agree that there's only one reality. I mean, we all live in reality and that there is something which is reality. And so even though, let's say at a university, there's a department of geology and there's a department of music and this and that, but somehow or other, all these things exist together in the same universe. And so therefore science by itself, or I would say religion by itself, cannot fully explain reality. And we should be careful not to take the, let's say, administrative or, or pragmatic division of the world into different departments and different fields as indicating the ultimate reality of the world. Like there actually is a biological universe, there's an astronomical universe, there's a musical universe, there's a historical universe. No. There's just one universe and it's multifaceted. And so again, the extent to which someone doing science realizes that I am just a person, a conscious person doing science, then the question would, I think there's a natural curiosity. What is the nature of the universe in which I'm doing science? And obviously that, that, that question cannot be fully answered by any type of physical or religious, you could say, explanation because the world is both physical and metaphysical. So this gets directly to consciousness because uh, if someone becomes a religious fanatic in the name of science or in the name of religion and tries to reduce everything to one category, uh, then often uh, they just distort and even mutilate uh, our understanding. So for example, there were many questions in that, that were presented here, that uh, the relationship basically between neurology and, and, and consciousness. And so if someone says, well, there is no separate thing, which is consciousness, consciousness is just a byproduct or an epiphenomenon of just, you know, physical neurology. It seems that it's at that point, a person that says that is no longer speaking as a neurologist or as a scientist. They've begun to speak uh, in philosophical and almost religious terms. Because it, it, it's um, science basically takes a particular context, whether it's you know astronomical or biological or just physics or just whatever it is, you know, different domains of science focus on different parts of reality and uh, 
and try to discover, I mean, there are certain things you basically do to rationally study anything. You need categories. You need to you know, find out what are the basic categories. Like for example, cell, a cell is a category. And then as we know within the cell, as some of you know very well, uh, there are different types of components of cells. And then there are organs and there are organisms. And so these are categories. If you didn't have these categories, you couldn't do science. If you didn't have the category in your mind, cell or organ, I mean, how in the world would you do biology? So we need categories and we need causality. Once we, once we can say, okay, there are different kinds of things in the physical world in physics or in biology or whatever, you know, whatever science you're in, there are different kinds of things and we can label them and we can, we can recognize categories. How do they interact? So as soon as you say interaction, then you're talking about causality. Things affect each other. If things don't affect each other, they're not interacting. And so when things interact and there's causality, so if you understand the category, you understand the, the, the causality, you're starting to get a science. So now science assumes, every scientific claim or the laws of science assume that, or, or not assume, but they would have to say, if, you know, if they're honest, that these causal relations take place within a closed system. It's like, let's say you have a little Petri dish. That's about all I know of biology. You know, they're, they're Petri dishes. Anyway, so let's say you're doing some kind of scientific experiment and you mix two things and you just sort of let them sit there together and you come back the next day to see what happens when you put these two substances or chemicals or whatever, you just put them together and leave them for a day at a certain temperature. Now, if unknowns to you, if you don't know, but someone came into your laboratory and did all kinds of things with, with your experiment, like added something else, or change the temperature for a while, when you come back, uh, you're not gonna get valid information. You have to have a controlled experiment. And control, of course, means that you make sure other causal forces that you are not aware of or that you don't want don't uh, infiltrate your experiment. And so, Science can only tell us that within a closed causal system, this is what happens in, in certain contexts. But how can you say that the causal system is closed? I mean, you can say it is because if certain things happen the way we predict, if we can predict it, then we can assume that there was no significant infiltration of some other causal factor. But for example, we have free will. And so there's an example, of, and that's why psychology has never been reduced to a hard science. And that's why psychology will never be a hard science because, because there's consciousness. So if someone says, so therefore people that say that uh, there's nothing in the universe but physical things that you can study empirically, they reject free will. Now, the only way you could prove, because if we, if we have actual free will, then the universe is not deterministic. The universe is not merely physical because there are things that cannot be reduced down to physical laws. 
And so you have people claiming the universe is merely physical and therefore deterministic, and therefore there can be ultimately a physical science of consciousness. The problem is they're cheating because they cannot predict human behavior. Now, if you say, if you could say that if I knew enough about you, someone could say to me, if I knew enough about you, I could predict what you're going to do at every moment. If I knew enough about the initial conditions, uh, uh, your life, everything that you experienced in your life, if I had enough data, I could actually predict in the same way I predict that if an apple, you know, falls off a tree, it's going to go down and not sideways. So in the same way I could, so, but you can't do that. No one can do that. There is no such science. But and so for someone to say that consciousness is a, physical thing, but we can't predict, we can't do those kinds of tests, but someday we will. How in the world can you call something science when you say, we don't know it, but someday we will, but in the meantime, we'll take credit as if we had shown that. But how, do, like, even for physical systems, uh, I mean, one of the great advancements on, in physics in the 20th century was the discovery of chaos theory. But for the simplest deterministic system, if we cannot measure accurate enough or we cannot get to the initial conditions of the system, it's going to evolve in a way that we cannot really predict. A simple system such as a pendulum with three arms that is just doing these random movements. I mean, there's uh, fascinating uh, uh, animations of this that at the beginning, uh, if you minimally by nothing, but something that you could never hope to measure experimentally change the initial conditions, you're going to end up in something completely unpredictable, uh, even though it's, it comes from a physical system that we know the laws that are governed by, and is even a deterministic system, not even probabilistic. So there's, there's, there's things even within our, what we call physical reality that we cannot predict just because we, we, like is the nature of, of this phenomena that is unpredictable. Yes, exactly. So. exactly. So, so, so if we go with that, I mean, you, that's a very important point you brought up. And uh, Richard Thompson, Sadaputa, who was a, a dear friend of mine who passed away, but he, he, he wrote about this, that, um, so it, let's just, okay, taking what you just said, that in the initial conditions, you can have slight changes, which can which are not detectable. What that means philosophically is, that you could have something like a God, I mean, I don't care what word you use, but something like a God, a generic God, and uh, who is actually influencing the course of history, both biological history, and you could say, you know, history of nations or whatever, just influencing history in a way which doesn't violate the known laws of physics. And, and, and so therefore, there is no scientific basis to claim philosophical materialism uh, or, or, philosoph or physicalism. So if, if one says that, th that consciousness is just a material thing, let me put it to you this way. If that were true, how in the world would you prove it? Because as we know, if something does not even lend itself to a proof, you can't even figure out a way, uh, an experiment that would prove it. 
then how in the world can one make that claim? So the claim that consciousness is just another physical thing, maybe a little, you know, a little weird, spooky, but it's a material thing. How is that even a scientific claim? It, it's, it seems like someone's just preaching from the pulpit. You know, it's a materialist just giving a Sunday morning sermon. Porfirio, do, do you have anything to say? And maybe you can even ask your question. Uh, maybe either the one that you've written down or maybe another question. That you sure. Have. Yeah, whatever you like. Uh, yeah, I agree with uh, you and Manuel that we have little evidence uh, to help us understand consciousness and what is the nature of uh, the process of uh, consciousness. But I would say that the lack of uh, evidence is no evidence. And the little evidence that we have so far suggests that this is something that we don't understand, but that doesn't imply that we are never going to understand it. Okay, uh, so I think taking sure. the posture that lack of evidence is some form of evidence, of strong evidence, especially. Well, well, yeah, they say lack of evidence is not evidence of a lack. Or, or, so, but what about this? Just let's say hypothetically. Let's say hypothetically for the sake of discussion, see where the logic takes us. Let's say there are really two fundamental realities in the universe, physical and metaphysical. So that, for example, when we reject, as I, a point I brought up many times, when we reject virtually 100% of the empiric evidence, which all tells us that we're not equal, and instead we insist on a political, social justice system which claims that we're equal when empirically we're obviously not, um, that we are privileging what we claim to be a metaphysical fact. Because if someone says, for example, all people should be equal under the law, that's what justice is. Like that's why they have that famous statue uh, often seen outside courthouses or inside courthouses of the goddess of justice holding, you know, blindfolded means no prejudice. Like, I don't know if the accused person is my friend or my family, that's the blindfold and holding the scale because the scale measures only the evidence. So this goddess of justice blindfolded and holding the scale, uh, is that just mythology? In other words, is there any truth to the fact or that's no, is there, is it in any way true that we are equal? That regardless of your race, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your age, regardless of there's, there's like a list of 500 things that you have to, you know, you can't discriminate on the basis of. So regardless of all these things in a very powerful fundamental sense, we are equal. If that is true, then the, then the universe is bi-dimensional. And I, I, I find this topic a bit confusing uh, because I don't know if it pertains, pertains to this conversation in the sense that uh, uh, all, every human being equal, is I see that as a useful construct, but not necessarily as something representative of the universal truth that I think is something that you're trying so, so to get. There, So you think that it's possible to let's say kill innocent people and really you haven't done anything wrong in other I words believe good, and, good and bad are subjective labels are they, but, but are they but you see that's begging the question for example is there any society in the world civilized society not you know where that believes that 
There's nothing wrong with just walking down the street and killing innocent people. That that there are there societies that really believe that's that's morally okay. I, I mean think- the the Mesoamericans who have believed that before the Spanish church just burned to the ground everything that they believed in. But in their belief in their religious belief, you needed human sacrifices for the sun to rise the next day. Yes, yes, yes. So okay, so listen. So if we look at the Los Aztecas, or actually, I'm I'm more of a Tolteca fan because I think they're. <laughs> But anyway, if we look at that, uh, first of all, if we claim that now they the Aztecs actually had a belief. The Aztecs believed, if you actually go into their worldview, that uh, first of all, the world is dualistic. They believed that uh, their god, the, the sun god or whatever, was engaged in a battle with, the, with an evil god and that offering human sacrifices was actually saving the universe. It was actually saving the universe because uh, by offering those sacrifices, they were empowering their god to defeat whatever they consider to be an evil. Now, if it were the fact that, let's say, to save Earth. What if it was a fact that a meteor, let's say a meteor was going to collide with Earth. And if the collision took place, the Earth would basically be destroyed and all life as we know it on Earth would just be extinguished. Let's just imagine a scenario like that. And what if the only way to stop that from the total destruction of life on Earth or the destruction of Earth was to detonate a nuclear bomb in a particular place and because of all the geology and the stress and just you know all the science what if it were the case that that bomb had to be set off in one particular place because it was only by detonating the bomb in that specific place that you would somehow move the earth in a certain direction just enough to avoid that collision and whatever i mean just imagine a scenario like that and but let's say the one possible place where you could detonate that weapon uh, was populated. And if you don't set off that bomb, the whole earth is gone. All life on earth is, is, is destroyed. I would argue that people, even modern leaders would probably say, throw the bomb because otherwise all life on earth is finished. So I would argue in the case of the Aztecs that they had a certain worldview and within that worldview they justified themselves they justified to themselves that they were doing the right thing now we can believe and i very strongly believe they were wrong about certain assumptions but to say that they were wrong about certain assumptions which led them to really awful conclusions and same can be true if you look at the history of almost every country There are times in history where they made horrific mistakes in terms of what they assumed to be true about the universe and therefore in the pursuit of, of, of virtue did terrible things. But that doesn't, but we see that's not what we're really talking about here. That's actually beside the point. The real issue we're talking about here is do almost all people that aren't sociopaths or And sometimes sociopaths become leaders of countries. But are, are almost all people who aren't crazy, do they believe there is an objective item, there's an objective object in the universe which is not physical, 
it's metaphysical. And I would argue that even though, like, like for example, look at the history of science. I mean, if you look at the history of science, they always made, I mean, you could talk about for the last few thousand years, certain assumptions, for example, that uh, math is a valid way, is a valid language for science, and that there is an objective fact of the matter. If you look at Ptolemy's, look at Ptolemy's astronomy. He was scientific in the sense that he believed there was an objective state, there was an objective fact of the matter. It turned out he was wrong in his epicycles and in his uh, geocentric vision, but he accepted the objective that there is an objective, real physical world. And so for the point I'm making here, even the Aztecs believed that there is an objective, real, moral truth. And just like Ptolemy got, got it wrong, I think the Aztecs seriously got it wrong. I think Hitler got it wrong. I think a lot of people got it terribly wrong, but that doesn't mean that they didn't believe there's an objective fact of the matter. So now the, the point I wanted to get to is that if you look at India and yoga, now we get to yoga, so I actually can, uh, you know, I'll get paid today because I'm touching on all the topics. So if you look, if you look at uh, yoga, you have a group of people who are very intelligent. One thing we know, and it's, um, I think it's just obvious, that in India, the indigenous people of India, if you want to say genetically, there's a lot of them who are really smart. And you know, now that we've gotten past colonialism, I mean, there are smart people all around the world, you know, whether it's Mexico or India or, or, or anywhere. But India, if you look at India's achievements, I mean, one of the found, one of the people that discovered trigonometry was Aryabhata, who's also an astronomer. You know, sine, cosine, and all that actually comes from Sanskrit. They were just sort of mispronunciations of Sanskrit terms used by Aryabhata. If you look at the Indian achievements in, in, in language and linguistics, they, they were literally thousands of years, thousands of years ahead of Europe, literally. And they're also doing very well now in science. And so but thousands of years ago in India, you had very, very smart people. I mean, geniuses who were focused, you know, it's the same, you know, the ancestors of very smart Indians today. And their, many of their ancestors were not so concerned with technology in the physical world. They were very interested in the inner world, consciousness. What is the nature of consciousness? And they spent centuries studying this scientifically through meditation, through yoga. And they came to certain conclusions based on trial and error, based on experimentation. And so if you get a group of like really smart people who spend centuries studying rigorously the nature of consciousness, I, for one, am interested in what they have to say. And, and what these people claim is, and they were very much metaphysical scientists. They were rigorous, they were experimental, they were very smart, and they, they went at it for centuries. And so what you have is, I would claim, with a little help from their friends, like divine messages, 
what they what I think what we come we come up with is something like a spiritual science. And so how can you say maybe you're not ready to say, okay, I agree with that, but how in the world could someone confidently say they didn't come up with that? They don't have a science of consciousness. I mean, on what basis could you say that? That that they're wrong. In fact, in my own life, personal testimony, this is like now like Sunday morning television. You know, I'm going to testify. I'm going to, what God did in my life. But anyway, when I was, when I was 20 years old, a student at Berkeley, and I got involved in bhakti yoga, and I was, I would say, a very rational person. I mean, I was not inclined. I wasn't interested in religion. I was not looking for a supportive you know, religious community that was going to embrace me. And I was had zero interest in that. I had zero interest in a faith-based process. I mean, zero. I very much wanted to understand consciousness. If there's a God, what is God? How do you directly perceive it in an irrefutable, self-evident way? And so on. And so I began the process of bhakti yoga. And I found that the results I got wonderfully exceeded my expectations. And I found that I take a book, so, so I, have, I have a theory, which I can call Bhagavad Gita. I have a practice, which is bhakti yoga. And I find that by the practice that the results I get absolutely confirm the theory. Everything that I read that, that you know, should happen, if it were the case that I'm an eternal being, if it were the case that, you know, I'm an eternal conscious being and then and the universe exists in a certain way, the moral universe or, or the metaphysical universe, then certain things should happen. And, and so I have experience, experiences which I cannot rationally deny because they're self-evident. It's just like there's no empirical method imaginable that could prove that there's a real physical world outside your mind. Because oh, whatever, whatever. What's that? I would like to tap into your expertise of ancient uh, Indian philosophy and specifically the interpretation of the Gita. Yeah, please. And, uh, um, uh, I, I do not think that uh, the Gita and Indian philosophy is incompatible with modern science. I think we can find ways to reconcile them. And one specific point that I find specific, uh, very interesting is uh, the concept of uh, reincarnation in the yeah. sense that uh, to me, logically, it makes sense that, uh, or the way that I, my current interpretation of the Gita is that uh, it is advised uh, to be at peace. And uh, it, it is what? Advice of how one can achieve inner peace, to be at peace. Right. And uh, I think one way that I could think I can accomplish uh, that type of peace if I and read this uh, text is that I can just kill myself and then I don't have to suffer in this world. And I, would say, I would say no. I would say no. I would say that's illogical for the following reason. When I say that I want peace, I don't, I mean I want conscious peace because the sensation of being peaceful logically entails being conscious. If you are unconscious because you're dead, or let's say there's no soul and you kill yourself. Well, let's, I mean, I know you're not going to do that. But let's say someone kills himself and so they're unconscious and there's no soul. That's not peace. That's unconsciousness. 
Okay, so that, that's an interesting point, actually. But um, let me keep going so I, I can ask you the question that I had in mind. Bias, uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the way that I interpret reincarnation is that this is a way around that. If I kill myself, that doesn't do anything because I'm going to, uh, again, come to this world in a different form, and perhaps a worse one than I, than I am today. Yes. Uh, the point that I found uh, very interesting is that it seems like the progress that you make towards uh, accomplishing that inner peace in this life is saved for you in the next one. Do I understand that uh, yes. correctly? You, the, the progress is saved, like much like in a video game, or you can turn it off and then you can come, come back. Uh, so one interpretation of that is uh, that in order for you to recover your progress in your next life, then uh, that could manifest in many ways uh, that eventually get you closer to where you were in your previous life. That could manifest as me being interested in reading the Gita in this life, for example. Maybe that is because in a previous life I, I did something good. Uh, but then that also removes, I think, a large to a large extent, the degrees of freedom that are available to me in terms of my behaviors. So that is uh, taking a big chunk of my free will. Uh, I, I will I will argue against that. For example, let's say that I, well. Let's say once it's safe to do so, I buy a commercial airline ticket and I actually do have to fly somewhere as soon as this stuff is over because I have something I have to do. But let's say and I fly to Nashville, Tennessee, not because I'm a famous country music singer, which of course I am, but that's a joke. So let's say I fly to Nashville. Now, once I buy the ticket and get on the plane and, and we take off, I have created a situation in which I have forced myself to fly to Nashville. You know, let's say when, when we're over Albuquerque, I can't, you know, hit the button and the flight attendant comes and I say, you know, I changed my mind. No, I have to fly to Nashville. And then if I want take another plane back or, you know, jump back in a pogo stick or whatever. So the point is, your choices have consequences. And so whatever situation you are in, in your next life, it's because you chose it. Now, let's say, for example, in this life, you do some spiritual activity. And then in your next life, you're brought back. You're, let's say you're reminded of that or you're placed in a situation where it, it's present again. Now, at that point, you don't have to do that again. I don't have to do that, but I have to re remember. And by remembering, I, the space of possibilities that are open to me is smaller than... No, no because, I, for example, today, you have to remember that you decided to go to Caltech. I mean, what, I mean, the fact that you, let's say, apply to Caltech, you're admitted, you accept the offer, and you actually go there... I mean, you see, on, on the logic of what you're saying, every free choice we ever make is destructive because anything that you ever decide to do, anything at all, uh, number one, it has neurological consequences. You're affecting the way your brain is wired. <laughs> Someone calling me, sorry. The life of the rich and famous. Anyway, just kidding. So... <laughs> Basically, by that logic, anything you choose to do, because every, every action has a reaction. 
And the that's destru is destructive of the spaces possibilities that are available. No, it's not. To you. no, actually, I would say it's the opposite. It actually is the path to freedom. Because just like, you know, if you, let's say you're conducting a scientific experiment. And so, you know, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is, you do something in a laboratory, whatever it is. And you, and you, and there's a reaction. And that's precisely why you're doing the experiment to see what the result is. Now, the fact that you observe a causal event as a scientist, I did this and this is what happened or something didn't happen that I expected, but something else happened. That's called knowledge. I mean, you cannot learn unless you observe causality. That's how you learn anything. Like if, you know, a little kid, you know, touches some hot surface and, and, and you know, the, the kid learned don't touch hot surfaces. I mean, everything we know, how could you possibly know anything without observing causality. And so if you say, if I was really free, I could do things and, and my, my action would be absolutely outside any causal context, what does that even mean? I mean, it, it's hard to imagine what we're even talking about there. So the fact that you do things, whether it's in science or spirituality or sports, like I now know that if I run the track, you know, six hours a day, I'm basically going to destroy my body. So I will not run the track six hours a day. Or I now, you know, whatever you're learning. Or if I run 15 minutes a day, I'm not going to be competitive. I mean, that's what everything is in life. It's doing. I, I, I do not disagree with the things that, that you're saying. Yes. Uh, I actually believe, I do not believe that there is free will for physical reasons, but I found uh, uh, the Gita interesting that and the reincarnation hypothesis interesting in the sense that it restricts, uh, I think it factually restricts the possibilities that are out there for you. Um, However, I, I think even if I, but thank you for that. But if we examine your language, I think there's a logical contradiction even in your statement. What is because, the contradiction? Yeah, at your service, here it comes. <laughs> uh, when you say I believe something, anything, I mean, you know, whatever you happen to believe. In fact, I'm just going to look up the word in the terrible dictionary that's provided by Apple. But uh, to believe, to accept something is true, to feel sure of the truth. In other words, if to believe is to accept something is true, in a deterministic system, you never do that. You don't accept or reject. You are just a machine that's neurologically programmed have certain sensations and the very sense of believing is an illusion because you do not choose to believe or disbelieve anything you are a machine very sophisticated machine but a machine nonetheless you are not a person you have no free will you don't believe or disbelieve anything you simply have sensations and i would say that that is ultimately and i mean no offense to you Nonsense. Because... I, disagree. I don't see a contradiction there. And I mean, I agree with yeah. the essence of what you're saying, that uh, I am just an observer, yeah, because... which is an additional avenue that maybe is interesting to discuss, that the yeah. Gita suggests because... that one should be an observer. Andres, you also have something to say. Maybe you can just speak, and then maybe Dr. Resnick can answer. Uh, no, that's all right. We're, we're having a good talk here. Okay. Um, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I had another question, but yeah. this this current discussion is also interesting. Uh, and yeah, because um, if um, so, if if we don't, um, I I also I, I agree with Porfirio that um, it is not clear to me that the conclusions that you pointed out are actually absurd. Uh, it, in fact, it seems uh, consistent with uh, with reality. Well, well, no, the specific the specific thing that I called absurd, I want to be very precise here. Yeah. What I called absurd was the idea that if I do something and what I choose to do has consequences, then in such a system, my my freedom is always being reduced because every time I choose to do something, it has consequences. I would say it's exactly the opposite. I would say that by being reasonably diligent and studying the consequences of my choices, I have well, I I've actually become much more free. And but, but I mean, there are certain choices which obviously reduce your freedom. For example, if I choose to take heroin, I mean, if I choose to take heroin, there's an obvious example of choosing something which radically reduces my freedom. I'll give you even a more extreme example. I choose to jump off a cliff. Tirarme del barranco. So if I choose to jump off a cliff, as soon as I choose that, my freedom has been almost absolutely removed. And so if you compare activities which obviously reduce or simply eliminate altogether my freedom, taking heroin, jumping off a cliff, if I compare that to the consequences of, to give a nice, you know, homey example, chanting Hare Krishna, what I found in my life is that as I began to chant Hare Krishna, you know, centuries ago, uh, it dramatically increased my freedom. Because I perceived my life back then in Berkeley. I mean, I had lots of friends, but I felt that, you know, I don't want to be lonely. So I have friends that I don't really, I mean, you guys are much more fortunate. You have intelligent friends, but I had friends where I thought that, I, that we don't really have a lot in common, but they're old friends and I don't want to be alone. And so I, you know, I hang out with my friends or I do certain things that I know are not really beneficial for me. I engage in certain kinds of materialistic behavior which I cannot morally justify. I don't admire myself for doing those things. It's not really making me happy. And there were all kinds of things like that. And when I began my bhakti yoga process, I, be, I, 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 I saw that I'm becoming free from those things. I'm coming to a point where I can use my best intelligence. I can decide, because I really do have free will. If someone says I don't, you know, I feel, I feel bad for you, but I do. So I was able to use my intelligence and decide what's really best for me. What's going to make me happy? What's going to make me a good person? Because I do have principles. I do believe in justice. I yeah, do. okay. So, uh, so I think... So just to finish, I just want to finish this point. There are certain things I do believe in, such as justice, generosity, kindness, compassion. I believe that those things are real and I'm getting the power to live a life which is consistent with my principles, 
rather than being a hypocrite in many ways. And so there's no question in my life, my freedom dramatically increased when I began my spiritual practice. Well, I think the feeling of freedom increased when you when when you began your feeling of practice. I think perhaps we're making a mistake of equating choosing something with feeling like we chose something. Uh, no, but but then again, you feel that there's a real. You see, because I think first of all, you're giving a a straw man definition of feeling. Like, like, for example, I... Wait, you know, wait, I, wh wh why so? I'm, I'm defining feeling as just having the experience, a thought experience of uh, yeah, having well, the conviction yeah, of why. something. I'll tell you why. Because uh, I, I think, first of all, to say that someone has a feeling is not diagnostic. It, it doesn't help because you have a feeling that you're not freely choosing. If, if, you, if you subscribe to, because you can't prove you're not, you can't show a determined, you see, if, if I had the sensation that I'm choosing freely, but you could just go back to your computer and say, I can tell you exactly what he's going to do or almost exactly what he's going to do for the next three years. And it turned out you were right, that you knew exactly what I was going to say, what I was going to choose for the next three years, I would have to confront the reality that, whoops, you know, maybe I'm more determined than I knew. But you can't. I would do argue that predictability is a different uh, thing than free will. Uh, you're, uh, you're talking about predictability, whether we no, can no, predict what I'm or saying, not the outcome. No, it is different. That's my whole point. Because you're arguing against free will. I don't have to predict because because I believe that people are free, and of course, freedom is uh, to degrees. For example. If someone is an addict, a sex addict, a drug addict, then obviously they have very little freedom. But, and to the extent that you are, well, to use a, you know, the vernacular, spiritual, to the extent that you're really in higher consciousness, to that extent, you are not addicted, you are not compulsive. And, and to the extent that you are virtuous and enlightened and free, to that extent, you don't simply act as you feel. I don't simply act according to my feelings. You know, being rational, doing things which make sense intelligently is a huge part of my life. Yes, but did you have a choice in being rational, for example? Uh, it, it's, it's, but, but that's like, did I have a choice? I, I would say yes. But it doesn't matter, you see, because if, you see, if under certain conditions, let's say someone's in jail, falsely imprisoned, let's say it's some, you know, like some American college student goes to North Korea just because basically they're, idi they're idiotic and think it's, you know, I, I'm just curious to see North Korea. But let's say, you know, with sort of innocent intentions, not a spy, not working for the American intelligence agencies, they just go to North Korea and they're falsely accused and falsely imprisoned. And so let's say they somehow contrive at some great story, soon to be a major motion picture, and they somehow figure out how to escape, they have friends. And so it's like, once that person gets out of that prison, prison I mean, from the common sense perspective of almost everybody on earth, they're freer now than when they were locked up in that prison. 
And so how they got into the prison, I mean, I mean, how I became rational, that's not the issue. If by being rational, acting rationally, which to me means having a spiritual life, to me, it is grossly irrational not to practice spiritual life. And I could talk all day and night about why it's grossly irrational. But to me- So I had just heard- So just to complete this. So therefore, if, if it's the case that being truly rational leads to freedom, like you don't eat foods that cause heart attacks or you don't eat foods that cause, you know, strokes and things like that. You know, you eat in a rational way, you behave in a rational way, you don't, you know, drive your car at 80 miles an hour through a red light in a school zone. So let's say if you behave in a rational way, materially also, physically also, and spiritually, and therefore your freedom increases, even materially your freedom increases by rational behavior. That doesn't mean like how I became rational, how I came to choose rationality is not necessarily relevant to the fact that leading a, re, a, re, a, a rational life increases your freedom. Like it's rational to pay your taxes so you, you don't, you're not arrested and, and end up in jail. There's just certain behaviors which will prolong your life and give you the things you desire. So it's, it sounds to me then that, that the definition, so we never defined what we meant by being free, but it sounds to me that it's extrapolating from, from the discussion, it sounds that the dis- definition of freedom we're taking is that of being able to influence the world uh, by means that are external to the laws of physics. No, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I think free means. Yeah, absolutely. For example, let's say I value compassion. I think that it's, a, you know, and again, when I say value, I'm already outside the empirical world. You know what I mean. You may not believe such a thing really exists. I do. I think there are real object. I think it's an objective fact that virtue, that compassion is good, and although neither of those words is empirical, good in that sense is not empirical and compassion is not empirical. So I'm making a totally non-empirical claim that compassion is good. If you see someone in your family suffering, like really in pain, let, let's say for example, uh, they've fallen and, 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 and if, if you give them a pill, their pain will go away and they can't reach the pills themselves. And so, you know, you, you could say, okay, if I just, kick the pillbox away so, 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 so that someone I love will continue to be in agony. Nothing wrong with that because there are only empirical facts in the universe. There's no fact that it's good to be compassionate. So I can kick the pillbox away. I did nothing wrong because right and wrong are not empirical. I think that's absurd. But anyway, so, so if, if I choose to be compassionate, I choose it. And that's the point I was mentioning about feeling. I do not choose it simply because I feel that I should be. It's not just a feeling. It is an awareness. I don't believe that that, that I think if someone is in higher consciousness, uh, they do not act simply out of feelings. They act out of understanding and that there is an inseparable relationship between their feeling and their understanding. So when I feel compassionate, like if I can help you, I will. I mean, so I'm going to dedicate my life to trying to help people the best way that I know how. So when I make that decision that I want to dedicate my life to helping people, 
it's not a feeling. It's not just like, you know, you know, like it's not just a feeling. It's an understanding. I am seeing a fact in the universe of virtue, of goodness, of rightness. I'm seeing it. I'm knowing it. I'm understanding it. And you cannot separate my understanding from my feeling. There is so, then, so then I guess uh, you're uh, going in the direction of saying that freedom is the ability of letting those convictions, those knowledge of, say, metaphysical facts, let those pieces of knowledge influence the world. And that, that, and that those pieces of knowledge are themselves separate from the laws of physics. Uh, so if that, if that is the def definition of freedom that we're taking, then I would say that then our definition of physics is wrong because I, I think that physics should study anything that happens. And if something that happens is us influencing the world based on these knowledge of metaphysical facts, then that should be part of physics. Okay, I, I, okay, I appreciate that. I would say it should be part of the broad field of, of, of knowledge, but you know, if you play sports, uh, there's an English term, I mean, in English, ball hog. You know, like, let's say, for example, you're on a basketball team and one person always wants to shoot, always wants to have the ball and never passes. Uh, you're not, you know, in sports, you actually are much more likely to win in a team sport if you're a team player. A good team will always defeat another team where everyone just wants to do it themselves. And, and, you know, there are many historical examples of that. That's why, uh, anyway. So I would say that science or physics should not be a ball hog. In other words, what we should all admit I have specialized in certain things. You could say philosophy, theology. I like history too. But at the same time, I recognize that uh, science is extremely valuable. I mean, I am, I love real science, by the way. I am deeply, sincerely grateful to scientists who are not only, you know, giving me in, in so many ways, uh, taking away the pain I might feel, giving me a better, more meaningful life, but just telling us about the universe. So I, I think science is great. I'm a huge science fan, real science, not, you know, trying to preach materialism, the name of science. And so you see, I could argue that of course, we can use it, you know, you can use any word like Shakespeare said, a rose is a rose, doesn't matter what you call it, it still smells like a rose. So I would say that there's some logic in um, calling everything philosophy, but that, that we don't need to have that discussion. I mean, like, like who gets to have the name? Is everything theology and science is just a branch of theology ultimately? Is theology just a branch of science? It's to me, that's, it's just, names. The real fact is that the universe is complex. I find it extremely naive, naive and just childish to think that there's nothing in the universe except physical things. I find that to be childlike. 
Well, I was just describing to a family member the other day that actually someone who thinks that there is only matter actually hasn't understood science or even physics for that matter, because ultimately, if we go down to a very fundamental level, even particle physics, everyone agrees that uh, the more uh, underlying reality is field theory. In fact, and what are fields? It's not matter. It's just field theory. It's the potential that something can uh, manifest something can arise out of uh, uh, things that we don't know so far, um, and that that realm of physics is actually not understood by many. Uh, that very good point. That's actually called Hempel's uh, dilemma. Because which, if I could just, I, you know, sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but it's called Hempel's dilemma, and he, he was a philosopher of science, and he made the following point that one thing every science scientist would have to admit, and you've just brought up that point, is that physics, as it exists today, is not a complete science. We don't know everything about physics. In fact, the more scientists learn, the more it becomes obvious, wow, we're just really getting started here. There's so much there that we don't understand. And so it would be absurd to say that let's say in my metaphysical views, you could say, you know, religious or just moral or just metaphysical, that I have to agree with a science where they don't ultimately know what their position is. It's not, as we know from the history of science, we know this very well, it's not at all impossible. In fact, it's not even unlikely that in the future, some very brilliant scientists are going to, physicists, let's say, are going to discover things which just are total game changers. And that it's just like if you look at Ptolemy with his epicycles and his, you know, geocentric world, it worked wonderfully. I mean, it was the math all worked over a long period of time because of precession and so on it started not to work. And that's why the Vatican actually asked uh, Copernicus like to figure out what's going on here, which is, you don't hear about that. You hear about the trial of Galileo, but you don't hear about the church actually employing uh, Copernicus to figure it out and why Copernicus was not put on trial. In other words, you don't get the real history. You just hear this kind of silly pseudo history that the church was just against real science. But anyway, so you, as we know from the history of science, we know it very well. You can have a scientific theory which matches the data or it's, it, it, it's the best match of any other theory that it predicts a lot of things. It dramatically increases our explanatory, po explanatory power and is wrong. It's just wrong. Um, but it, 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 it worked to a certain extent. And then, so we cannot in any way argue I mean, the math wasn't wrong. I mean, a lot of things about it you could say were good, but ultimately the picture of the world was wrong. And that happens all the time. But so, so just to conclude, one more sentence and then I'll turn it over. And that is, Hempel's dilemma is, uh, let's see if I can find that very quickly for you and just read it to you. Uh, Hempel's dilemma is uh, a question first asked by the philosopher Carl Hempel, Anyway, it's how can you demand that, let's say, a metaphysician conform to agree with 
submit to the claims of a field of science, which is not even, doesn't even know what its final position is. Is um, it that religion has to change every generation as physics changes? I mean, quantum mechanics was a game changer, as we know, in many different ways. So is it that people who claim to have powerful spiritual experiences have to reinterpret everything every 20 years or 30 years, every time physics decides, well, actually it's not that, it's something else. I mean, that's absurd. Um, but why is it absurd? That's, that's yeah. the scientific process. Like Thomas Kuhn, you, you cited uh, earlier, that's a paradigm. You push it as hard as you can, you reach the limits, and then you come up with something new. That's just science. That's how it works. I'm not, yeah, I'm, like I'm not criticizing I'm not criticizing the scientific method and I praise them. I think it's to the credit of scientists that they're open to new understandings. I'm saying something else. I'm saying something very different. I'm saying if it's the case that there is a metaphysical dimension to the universe, which absolutely there is, and it's obvious. But uh, it's, it's hard to, say, to tell that it's obvious. Same well, I, I would say, but you know, quantum mechanics is not obvious to people that never studied it. Yeah, but we have to. You, we have ways to uh, have a framework to understand quantum mechanics. I have the same thing. You see, everything you have in your science, I have in my spiritual science. You can't point to anything that you have that I don't have. Well, I have. I, I, uh, have a, I have a theory. I have proof. I have because you see, if you you don't have to prove a scientific theory to some guy that never studies science. Okay, if I may interrupt, I think I think the, what we are all trying to agree on are there yes. is that scientists use different tools to study hypothesis and prove a particular point, and spiritual science uses some other tools which are not physical. Exactly, exactly. That's what I was getting. If I, if I could just finish this point, yeah. I mean, of course, that's the point. In other words, you're a scientist. You don't have to convince non-scientists. You have to convince other scientists. Um, there, 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 there's no advanced scientists. So, so what, what, I'm say, what I'm saying is, if it's the case, if it's the case that there's a spiritual science and there, and there is a large community of people coming down through time, just like there is a science community for many centuries, there is a community of spiritual scientists coming down for thousands of years who all agree precisely in different things, who have repeatable experiences, are experiencing a metaphysical universe. And so all you can say is, I don't believe it. You don't have to prove, if you have a theory in physics, you don't have to prove it to me because I'm not a physicist. And I don't have to prove my spiritual understanding to you if you're not a spiritual scientist. So what I'm talking about is, is this um, irrational, this sort of a blindness in the area of science. That it, it, it's... Uh. I completely agree with Dr. Resnick here. And uh, in the interest of time, I'd just like to say this one last thing is, uh, I think we as scientists, we have tools, we have physical tools uh, like, for example, me as an astronomer, we use tools that record photons. 
and we use material tools to record those photons and gather certain evidence or gather certain measurements which proves a certain point which shows us how the universe works biology uses some other tools now what dr resnick i think i believe if i understood correctly was trying to say is that spiritual science whatever has been done by uh in the process of yoga in formulating this uh, process of yoga is that these experiments were carried out with the mind with consciousness in order to try and understand who we are what consciousness is and we as scientists should be open to these tools to using these tools using these methods uh of trying to gather certain evidence in order to increase our understanding and not just be restricted to using physical tools we should and i've been thinking about this for the past several years now ever since i heard even of the problem of consciousness and science is that we should be ready to understand we should be open to understanding uh what the mind is and not be really restricted to a physicalist uh tool set uh and which, in fact with, you know, yeah with more with more and more scientists more and more scientists are rejecting that I mean you may yeah. not be aware of it but but there there is a a rapidly growing number of scientists who are who teach at top universities who are just rejecting physicalism because saying there's no proof of it exactly and the sort of explanation of consciousness today is sort of more tending to be that consciousness consciousness has prop, uh, matter doesn't have a property called consciousness matter has properties of electric electromagnetism it has properties of gravity it has all these properties but the property of consciousness hasn't been defined so far so we i think we as scientists shouldn't be very obstinate uh, or uh, very hard minded in terms of uh we should be very open to trying and understanding consciousness and if i may I ask can Dr. I, Resnick, can I, i'd like to put a question to david yeah by the way i enjoy your points i mean it's an interesting discussion so i have a, i have a question for david yeah sorry this been actually actually could i interrupt I'm actually, have some to... of us some of us would have to oh. leave okay. very soon okay. because yeah. it's already i actually yeah i actually whoever wants to, to go on the call so. can remain Did someone else have a question that didn't get a chance to ask their question? Um actually if I may if I may ask uh, request Dr. Resnick to maybe just uh, for those who need to leave how would philosophy or to be specific yoga philosophy or bhakti yoga philosophy really help us as scientists in understanding consciousness in our own lives as well as in our science if you mm-hmm. were to explain that how would you how would you do that? Well, I, yeah, those are very different things because in your own life, I mean that's in terms of being peaceful, being happy and just understanding a lot more of the universe and not just not just matter. Um as far as in science, uh spiritual beliefs have always well, maybe not always, but have resulted in a lot of the, the greatest scientific breakthroughs. Copernicus, do you know why Copernicus decided to investigate the possibility of heliocentrism I'll tell you why because he was a christian and he was a platonic christian i mean back going back to classical times there were there were christians who were inspired by plato and so plato talks about the sun as as a symbol of god because the sun is a you know it's a, it's a source of light so in all in all ancient wisdom traditions the sun has been a metaphor for knowledge for wisdom for god for light and everything 
And so, because he was inspired by Plato and he had a Christian worldview about God, he thought, well, maybe the sun should be the center. And, and so you, you have this long history, you have this long history of scientists, some of the greatest scientists, Newton, same thing for Newton. I mean, he, you have a long history of, of some of the greatest scientists who were inspired, for example, the very notion that we live in a lawful universe. If there were not laws in the universe, like gravity or, or whatever, any law of nature, you couldn't do science. Science is based on the assumption that there are laws of nature. And so the fact that there are laws of nature, where did they get that idea? Why did they assume there were laws of nature? Because they thought that there is a supreme lawgiver. So, you know, you may believe it for other reasons, but still, there's a the, the idea that somehow spiritual views are an obstacle to science, it just shows that someone doesn't have the slightest idea of the history of science. They, have, they, they, they just understand nothing about the history of science. And so if I, I could- I really have to go, so sorry. Yeah, All yeah. Right. I, so those who have to leave, really, thank you very much for joining in. And uh, Dr. Resnick, I'm not sure how much time you have left. I wanted to make that one question to David. And that is that... Um, thank you so much. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you very much for participating. I appreciate it. Yeah, I also have to go in a, in a second. Okay, last question. This, actually, I have to go too. So this is the last question. <laughs> and that is um, to you. You see, if we want to have a neutral discussion, you can't, in, in a debate, you can't tilt it. It has to be a level playing field. You can't set up a debate so that you have an advantage a priori. That's not fair. It has to be objective. And so therefore- uh, I, I'm not understanding. In other words, if I say, okay, we're gonna have an objective debate about the nature of reality, but we're going to assume that there's a God that created the universe. We're just going to assume that. It's obviously, it's not a, it's not a fair debate. If you assume something is true that you haven't that you can't prove outside your system, that's how that's what it means to have an objective debate. You have your system, which is let's say science, which obviously does a lot of good in the world. I have my system, which I don't reject science, I accept science. That's a difference. I don't think that I have to reject science. Some religious people think they have to reject science. I think they're fools. And I think it's equally foolish to think that to be a good scientist you have to reject spirituality. But in any case, when you have a fair debate, you have to be in a neutral arena. There has to be an objective area of discourse which is not tilted toward one side or the other, like a level playing field. If you're playing soccer and the field is tilted like that, so you're running downhill and your opponent is running uphill, that's not a fair game. So therefore, in an objective arena, where the field is not tilted toward one side or the other, what elements do you have? For example, in science, you have a theory or a hypothesis, and then you have an experiment where you, you, know, you observe, you try to observe something, and then you draw a conclusion from it, and then other people try to falsify your conclusion. But you see, and then you have applied science. You say, no, like with quantum mechanics, we may not know what really is down there, but we know that it works. That's why we have electronics, right? So 
in that sense, just in terms of talking about neutral categories and neutral procedures, what is there in empirical science that is not present in spiritual science? To give an example, if you say, okay, you have a theory that God created the world or there's a God or there's a soul, but there's no way to verify that. That in science, we have a theory, a hypothesis, but we have a process to verify. You don't. Well, we do. And, 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 and so we do have a process to verify. So what element, what component do you have in your methodology in a neutral sense that is missing in spiritual science? Yeah, I would say that only there is... Uh misconception there science doesn't try to verify hypothesis but it's the other way around in science you have an hypothesis and you try to disprove your hypothesis and get rid of false beliefs um okay. science doesn't I'll want to, to doesn't what? want i uh, just let me uh yeah yeah science assumes that the goal is not to understand reality that's unachievable science only does models that predict and that from which you can make predictions and you can describe the universe. Okay, okay. I, I would, falsifiable, so you can always build. I, I would say I would say that that is not actually true. Well, that's, that's what Karl Popper says. Uh, no, no, no. That that's no. But Karl Popper has been problematized, and 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 many people try to refute him. It's not that Karl Popper is the. It's actually our, our most modern concept of. No, science. no. But I, I'll I'll tell you why it's not true. It's, a, it, it, it's like this noble idea that's not really what's going on in science. Because in the real world in science, people do try to show things. They do try to prove things. For example, when I was at UCLA, there was an astronomer there who was trying to prove there are brown dwarfs, which hadn't been confirmed. And he, he wasn't trying to disprove it. He was trying to prove it. He said it. I heard him that's, say it. That's pseudoscience in any case. It's not pseudoscience because he actually found the brown dwarfs. And, and obviously we know, and that's why we now accept brown dwarfs, because he actually found them. And, and so in, in, in real science, of course you have a hypothesis that I think that this is what's going on. And I mean, trying to disprove something and trying to prove it at a certain point, it's the same process. And, and, and so I would say the same thing goes on, but in any case, I will say you didn't show a difference from religion because when people are rational and accept a tradition. For example, I accepted a certain tradition. Of course, I tried to disprove it. Of course, I, of course I looked, is there something wrong with it? Is there some inconsistency, some contradiction in the philosophy? Is, there, is the experience I'm having, can it be better explained in another way? Of course, I tried to do that. You know, you know, you know, trying to disprove something before you accept it. That's not science. That's what any rational person does before they accept anything. If, if I read a book, I'm, you know, it, it's just that's what rational people do. And, and as far as Karl Popper, I mean, you obviously are not in the field of philosophy of science, because in the field of philosophy of science, Karl Popper is just one opinion. And I've seen many, 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 many scientists who really had a pet theory, and they, they were not hoping to disprove it. They were not trying to disprove it. They were being rigorous. You see, you conf I think you, you, you confused two things here. One thing is trying to prove something, but being very rigorous and having high integrity and not announcing that you proved it until you've gone through every possible way to disprove it. But obviously scientists, what inspires someone to be a scientist is not the sheer pleasure of disproving theories. 
What actually inspires when, when people are doing, you know, biomedical research, they're trying to cure diseases. They're not trying to show there is no cure for the disease. That's not what inspires them. When you have people in computer science, they're not trying to prove there is no next generation of computer. They're trying to find the next generation of computer. But before it goes into mass production, they have to be rigorous and have integrity and go through every possible process to show that it's not really better. So I would say what's really going on in science, what inspires people to become scientists, and they say this all the time, you can look at testimonies of thousands of famous scientists and hundreds of Nobel laureates. They all say the same thing. They were inspired because they wanted to increase human knowledge, but because they are rigorous, because they have integrity, they do not declare that they have increased knowledge until they've gone through every possible way to falsify it. But the human motivation, the psychology, the inspiration for almost all scientists is not to disprove everything and to prove skepticism that we know nothing. It's exactly the opposite. It's to cure diseases. It's to improve communication for the sheer joy of, why are scientists trying so hard to find out what's really going on at a subatomic level? And, and, and trying to, because they care about what's really there. So to say scientists, oh, they don't care about what the universe is. They don't care about curing diseases. Uh, I, I don't think anyone said that. <laughs> well, that's what you said. You said that you no, said that. No, you said the, the purpose of, maybe I, if I misunderstood you, I apologize. But what I heard, I won't say you said it, but what I heard was that scientists, their goal is to disprove things. No, it's just in the framework. The, I know, but, 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 but again, you see, but the original context was, can you show a difference between spiritual and material science? And before I did something which was, frankly, humiliating, because when I joined the Hare Krishna movement, it was humiliating. Every, you know, my family thought I was crazy, and, and people thought, oh my God, you're a freak. I mean, it was put on some weird clothes and go out in the street, and I mean, it was humiliating. I hated it. I mean, I didn't hate the spiritual benefits. I hated all the external things I had to do. And so I only accepted it when I could not reasonably deny it. So th th this, 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 what do you call it? Cartoon, th th this fairy tale that some people are rational and really care about evidence and they become scientists and some people are kind of don't care about evidence don't care about being rational, they just jump on some religion. That's that's completely wrong. All and right, as so we, we're already 20 minutes over time. So yeah. let's say we stop we stop in like nine more minutes. Uh, okay. Yeah, I have to go actually right now. All right, David, thank you so much for joining in and uh, uh yeah thank you David I, mean, I enjoyed our discussion. Nothing you know nothing just it was a good discussion. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Resnick, for your time. But I just want to ask Enrique, I'm sorry we didn't have any uh, sort of time to ask you any of your questions. But uh, in case you have anything, please feel free in the next maybe several few minutes or so, or Andres for that matter, or Guru. Okay, so one thing that I really wanted to know is like if there is any difference between consciousness and awareness. Oh, like right. How, how do they complement each other if, if one can exist without the other? 
Uh, yeah, I, I read your question. I think, but I'm going to verify it now, that they are direct synonyms. Let's see, awareness is, uh, yeah, consciousness is given as the primary synonym of awareness. Okay. And, uh, and uh, consciousness, yeah. Yeah, they, I think they're, they're, they are very close synonyms. Is there a difference in how you use them? Um, it's a good, interesting question. Uh, in the way I use it, um, awareness, con well, I would say if there is a difference, just in my understanding, uh, I mean, you can be conscious. I would say if you say I am conscious of, then it's almost the same as awareness. Like for example, someone can be technically conscious, but be totally unaware of a lot of things that are going on around them. And so uh, I think awareness would be like conscious of, or consciousness of something is awareness. But if you take away the of and just say consciousness, then it's, um, I mean, you could be technically awake and conscious, but kind of really not paying attention to what's going on around you. Thanks. They know. <laughs> Andres, do you have any anything to bring up or Emmanuel in the next maybe few minutes? Um, or we can end here. Well, just, just quickly. Uh, so I really like this idea that uh, say, um, uh, whatever was done in the East for, for millennia is a kind of science of, like this is sort of an introspective science uh, and that complement should complement the science that has been practiced in the West. Uh, I, uh, I really like that idea uh, and, you know, and that there are, that it is possible to conceive of uh, say empirical uh, knowledge acquisition in, 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 introspect, in introspection. Uh, but it's for me hard to see, for example, how a claim like reincarnation is, uh, would be justified. So if, if we cannot justify the existence of a physical world, yes. uh, how can we justify the existence of something like reincarnation? Okay. Okay. Good question. First of all, I think, we can justify the existence of a physical world. And, and, and the reason I pointed all that out was just to say that, as far as I'm concerned, there is a real physical world. Scientists are studying it. And then if you ask the question, well, how do we know that? Or why do we assume that? And the answer is because the physical world presents itself to our consciousness, our senses in various ways, so that uh, the quality of that experience it justifies itself. For example, let's say you're sleeping and dreaming and you wake up and you can't empirically prove that you're awake. I mean, you know, you could say theoretically, okay, you were awake and now you are dreaming, but you're, you compare the quality of your dream experience and now you're awake and you decide this is more real. And so if we say like, how do you decide that? Why does everyone, almost everyone, agrees or, or you know when you're dreaming and when you're awake and and it's not controversial 
So we have, what that tells me is, actually Plato talks about this a lot. What that tells me is that you exist in such a way, however you got there, that you have the power to differentiate between different levels of reality. And, and so when I started my bhakti yoga practice and I started having just, just very, very powerful experiences. And uh, it's not that I used to think the sky was blue, but when I chanted Hare Krishna, I saw it was green. I mean, it wasn't something silly like that. I, was a, I had the same body. I was in the same body. I had the same family. I lived in the same house. And I had the same friends and, you know, science was still science. But it was that I was experiencing everything from a different level. And, and, and it, was more, it was more real. Plus, I experienced things I had not been aware of, such as Krishna. And, and, and the experience was self-evident, just as it's self-evident to me that the world really exists. And so, and so the reason I mentioned that about the nature of self-evidence as, as a, uh, which is really the foundation of phil philosophical epistemology in the sense that any system of knowledge that you construct, whether it's an empirical system or a philosophical system or a theological system, it has to be constructed on a foundation which is self-evident. Self because if it's not self-evident, you'll be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. And, and so Aristotle pointed that, pointed that out. So, so the point I was making to David before is that um, structurally, everything that is there in material science is there in spiritual science. It just focuses on something else. It's just like if you're a geologist or if you're a biologist, it's the same basic principles of science. It's just you're studying something else. And so imagine a crazy world in which people said you either have to accept geology or you have to accept biology. And someone said, no, everything is biological. No, everything is geological. It would be silly. It's just, it's just silliness. And so theology can be at its best of science. As you know, there's, a, there's, there's unlimited pseudoscience in the world. You know, there's all kinds of pseudoscience that scientists reject but the people that espouse it believe it's real science. And so there's pseudo, and, and so there are objective ways to distinguish between pseudoscience and real science. And there are objective ways to distinguish between let's say bad religion and, and religion, which I think is justifiable. It's not completely subjective. All right. Thank you very, very much, Dr. Resnick, for all your time and to everyone for joining in. And <laughs> thank you all very much. I, pre I appreciate it. Actually, you made an excellent point uh, just to end with was uh, what would be a world where biologists are saying that everything is biology, all of physics and all of everything else is not required. And what would be a physics without... Uh, everything else. I mean, physicists wouldn't really say that uh, everything is physics. I mean, that's how we should look at things. And uh, especially this problem of consciousness has been out there for so long because it is so interdisciplinary that we all need to work together to try and understand it. Exactly. Uh, and so that's why we've started. Exactly. If I use one last point, I promise, I swear to God, yeah. the last Please. point. And that is that if you are a real scientist, I'll tell you what I think a real scientist is. 
I think a real scientist is a person who is fair-minded, who weighs the evidence reasonably, and who is motivated by a sincere desire to understand. Like, I'm born in this world. What is this world? I really want to understand. And so if you became aware that there is a community of people who've existed for thousands of years, who claim that there is a spiritual science, if you were really objective, you would say, that's interesting. I'm going to take a look. If, I, if it's not real, I'll reject it. And if it is real, I may dramatically improve my life. Because why would someone want to argue, passionately argue, that I will not survive? If it turns out the spiritual science is real, it means that there's a good chance you can live forever. And if it turns out the spiritual science is false, then no, you know, you, your body's gonna die and bye-bye, you're gone, you're gone forever. So why would someone passionately insist that I will not survive? And when I hear that, and when you don't know, because an atheist or a materialist, they don't know, how could they possibly know? How can you know that there's no God? I mean, what would be the proof? What possible proof there could, could there be? So, so why would someone passionately dedicate their, dedicate their life to arguing against their own survival? There's something very weird about that to me. I don't want to just you know do a low blow and come in with a psychological argument, but there's something weird about that. If you don't know, like if you're on a boat and it's sinking, and there's a maybe a life, you know, life a vest, life vest. Maybe I can survive. No, nah, I'm going to argue that I'll, that I'm that I'm, that I'm not going to survive. Why would you argue when you don't know against your own survival? It, it seems really bizarre to me. That's an excellent point to, for each of us to think on and dwell on and meditate on. And, and uh, really, really thank you very much, Dr. Resnick, for all your time and for everyone else. And we would really look forward to continuing these discussions amongst ourselves as well as with you, hopefully, if you have any time in the future sometime. We'd love yes. to chat. Thank you. Thank you all very much. And thanks to Nanda Leela, our technical maestra. Gracias a todos. Without you, this wouldn't have been possible. All right. Gracias thanks a todos y hasta luego. Hasta luego. Bye, Krishna.